You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Bachelor and I'm joined this week by Kelly Wallach, CEO of Indie Megabooth and chairperson of the Indie Games Festival. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. For anyone that's listening that doesn't know what Indie Megabooth or the Indie Games Festival is, could you could you elaborate a little bit? Could you give us a little intro- introduction to yourself? Yeah, so the Indie Mega Booth, I guess the kind of best way to describe it is that it's a collection of independent games that we curate um, at larger consumer-facing events. So you think of something like PAX, where you have, I don't know, a hundred and some thousand people come to it. Uh, as a small independent developer, you can buy your own booth space and you know maybe you're off in a corner somewhere or maybe people walk by, um, but it's going to be hard for you to get noticed around all of these companies that have multi-million dollar budgets and giant stages and dinosaurs and trees and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, and so about it's been about six years. So six years ago, uh, we had the idea to just buy out a big space, split it up between a bunch of indie developers and put it under one umbrella, essentially, uh, as a way to help the teams navigate what it's like to showcase at a bigger game or at a bigger game conference um, and also to do some marketing and PR for them and to give them a support network between, you know, all these different teams. And that's kind of grown into something that now we do a lot of other work, like we work with um, platform holders and publishers and partners and sponsors and all these people to connect them up with really cool indie game content and to also give the developers lots of different opportunities to get their work out there. So it's kind of turned into this whole like support community, I guess, for independent developers. Um, and then the Independent Games Festival, that's something that's held at GDC every year uh, in San Francisco, so the Game Developers Conference. And that's actually, this is the 20th year that it's been it's been on, in operation. I have not been running it for 20 years. I've been running it for the last three years. Um, but this was something that you know was a competition to help to bring awareness and to get people information about independent games and to celebrate the cool stuff that's made each year. So I was really, really honored when they asked me to take over it a couple of years ago, and I really love it. Um, it's definitely like something that's in in my wheelhouse, I guess, so to say. Um, yeah, and and every year it's like I'm always just really really honored to like be a part of it and to see all of the really cool games and to see people being celebrated for, you know, something that it's like, you know, indie games don't always participate in the really big shows or really big award ceremonies. And it's really cool that there's something that's specifically for independent developers. Mm. It's great that it's been going for 20 years, the, the festival, because I, th- I think there's the perception out there that indie games have only been big or noticeable for about 10 years. Um, yeah. You know, because, like, you know, thanks to the right to, like, you know, digital distribution, meaning that it's easier for indies to get their games out there onto the market. I guess people feel like the current wave of indie games has only been going around for, for 10 years. But, uh, yeah, the, the festival's going around for 20. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, why, why do you think it is that, that people kind of focus on just the last few years of indie games rather than the one? What, what were the ones before indie games started taking off? What would, what, why were they having trouble getting noticed? Well, so I think, I mean, there's a couple things. Like if you think back to very, very early video games, and Bennett Foddy actually gave a talk about this at Indicate a couple years ago, like the history of, of independent games and, you know, like stuff like, ColecoVision or even Atari to some extent, uh, you know, these were not big teams of people and they were kind of doing something a little weird and making niche stuff for strange platforms and new new mediums. Uh, and so if you look about, you know, you think back and you look at it, like technically those are indie games, right? But it really wasn't thought of that way. But I think around the time when most people, uh, you know, around my generation, I'm like about in my mid thirties or so, like you kind of think back to Nintendo and you think of Mario and 
and the idea of how you got that seemed really like a it was like a magical black box that just showed up and you had these cool games and not like you didn't know stuff about the people that were making them but it was a little like oh Nintendo makes these or this company makes them um and I think unless you were really involved in in video games or you had a really big interest in this you kind of didn't really know too much about the people that were making them and so I think the rise of the idea of like the independent developer came along like you were saying with like uh, easier distribution platforms, uh, ways for people to be able to make interesting stuff without having like a really heavy coding background. So you have stuff now like Unity and Twine and Unreal and um, you know Game Maker and and all these all these engines and all these tools that let you make really cool content without having to like you know have learned how to program for twenty years or something. And so I think around this time also you had people writing about games on the internet and you learn more about it and you have people being able to do direct marketing. So you hear more stories about the people who are making games and about the individual creators. And so, like I said, about six years ago was when we started up the mega booth and around that time was a really big kind of like rise, I think in games journalism around the story of independent developers and what it meant, um, why it was important to support developers who are making essentially art, in some ways. So, um, you know, like, where's the stuff coming from? Who are the people that are making it? And there was also kind of a rush of around that time, like, and maybe like the year or so before, like Minecraft got really big and Antichamber blew up and Monaco was big. And so there was kind of this like, um, you know, Braid obviously had started that like a little bit before that. So there was also kind of like the the story of like the lone developer, or the very tiny team who just kind of like came up out of nowhere. Um, and I think that that was really fascinating. So there's been that focus on like that specific, I think, like genre of indie games. But that doesn't mean that small teams of people weren't making them for a really long time. I just don't think that it kind of had made it out into the the ecosystem of people who play games until, you know, the last like 10 years or so. Mm. It's certainly always uh, interesting to kind of see how these indie games start to crop up and start to become more noticeable in the games media at the moment. I mean, you look at like the big AAAs and the blockbusters and the the, the the typical big games. Most games websites will have a preview or a review or an interview or something around the same sort of time because it's all very kind of PR controlled. Yeah. But, but indie games, like, you know, you look at any two sites might be covering completely different games because yeah. it's just something that the journalist has stumbled upon and thought, hey, I'm going to write about this. And I, think, I think every journalist quietly wants to find, like, be the one that finds the next Minecraft. Yeah, find, uh, the know. hidden gem. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, do you have any kind of advice to, to indie developers on, on how they can get themselves noticed, particularly you know, either by the traditional press, you know, the journalists, or even by like, you know, the YouTubers and influencers and Twitch streamers? Like, they're, they're the ones that are often discovering these kind of games and getting them them out there as well man the million dollar question i I wish i had an easy answer for it actually um and i think like one of the things that has been kind of proven time and again since i've been in in the industry at least is i think for indie developers grassroots grassroots marketing is really kind of like the bread and butter and the way that you get your game notice and the way that you get ahead and that can mean a lot of things that could mean going to a ton of different shows you know like i see developers that it's like you know, I go to a lot of events and I see them all the time. So it's like, hey, it's been like two weeks since I've last seen you. Um, but then you also have things like, okay, maybe your game plays really well on Twitch or maybe a YouTuber picks it up or maybe there's a subreddit that talks about your game. Um, and so I think really like engaging engaging a variety of audiences until you find who it really resonates with is I think something that really can help indie developers stand apart. And so 
you know, like there's stuff like the mega booth and the IGF. So people submit to that, but there's also things like Indicade and there's the mix and, you know, there's tons of these, um, like showcase opportunities and then you get the right person looking at it or, you know, someone writes an article or maybe someone makes a let's play video about it. And then you kind of start to build your audience from there. And I think really being able to understand and take advantage of the opportunities that you have in front of you. Like there's the idea that like you have to be lucky and I'm making air quotes over the lucky. Um, But I think that the idea of luck is really the more experience you have, the more you're able to identify what opportunities are worth going after and which ones aren't. Um, And I think that in some ways you can kind of like make your, make your own luck in that sense. Like not that there's not factors outside of your control, you know, like maybe zombie games are the big this year, or maybe you make a zombie game and then three months after you go to launch it, it turns out zombie games are not cool anymore. You know, so there's market forces and things that are outside of your control, but there's plenty of stuff that is in your control. Um, And I think also really understanding, like, what are you going to define success as, you know, if you're going to define success as I'm going to be the next Minecraft, well, you know, likely you're going to fail at it because that's a that's a lightning in a bottle kind of thing. Like that's a a very rare situation. But if you just define success as I want to, you know, make a studio that supports itself, or I want to put out my creative vision, or I want to publish it on Nintendo, or I want to work with someone at Sony or something. You know, like I think that having those things in mind when you go into making a game as an indie developer can really help you focus where your where your effort where your efforts are. So unfortunately, I don't think it's like you know, there's any one kind of formula or any one solution, but I think that there's plenty of lots of different opportunities out there. And you really just need to like narrow down, like, you know, what do I want to get out of this? Who is my actual audience? And like, what am I imagining this is going to look like when it's finished? And if you can get those questions answered and just focus all your energy on that, like that's how you can succeed. You know, there's the concept of like a thousand super fans, like you don't need as a small team, you don't need millions and millions and millions of players, but you do need a dedicated core of people who are going to buy and play your game and that can sustain you and that can help you to keep making games in the future, which I think is really rad. Like that's a cool situation that we're in now. Definitely. Yeah. I, I always feel almost sorry. Sounds a little patronizing, like not sorry, but I kind <laughs> of, I, I admire um, pretty much every indie I ever meet because yeah. <laughs> the, the odds of, of, as you say, like, success depending on your your level of success like yeah if you lower your your expectations of success or or the kind of your the the bar for success too i need my core audience that will sustain me and 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 i just need the people that want this game i want you know i I want to reach the audience that i'm making this game for even that is so difficult nowadays and you just you just see so many games like i really want i personally want their game to succeed i want it to keep going but it's it doesn't happen for everyone unfortunately um I, yeah I, discover discoverability has been an issue in the indie space for a good couple of years now and that's something we always try to work to address it um i think there's a lot of smart people in the industry that are working on it now as well like we're going to have some announcements coming up over the next year or so um you know addressing these issues specifically and yeah in some ways you know like i we see hundreds of teams like we have oh my god probably close to 800 companies that we've worked with over the last six years. And so I've seen a lot of people kind of like come and go and a lot of people have successes and a lot of people feel like they have failures, but then make something new. You know, you have lots of different companies that we've seen over the years. And in some ways, I'm like, how are people making money? How are they surviving? How are they getting their games out there? But it still happens, you know, like we still have um, a large amount of teams that we work with over the years that I see year after year after year. And I see them at shows and I see them making new games. And some of that comes from You know, if you're a studio in Canada, you can get government grants. If you're a studio in the U.S., you can get 
investment or you can get funding, you can run a Kickstarter. Um, you know, there's all these other kinds of ways that you can help to financially support the content that you want to make to keep you sustainable or to hopefully help you break out of that and become profitable and make games. Like you look at a company like Clay or um, Cappy or, you know, all these kind of like staples of the the independent scene. And like they, they had to start somewhere. Um, and I think that they're inspiring and they help to give back to the community to mentor and help to grow and teach other other independent developers and other studios, you know, like what worked for them and what didn't. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels between the music industry as well. Like if you kind of look at it and you're like, how are artists making money? You know, how is this working? And in some ways, some of them aren't. Um, but then in other ways, like it's easier than ever to connect directly to your actual core audience, like to reach, if you make niche music, like you can find that niche group of people now who want to play your stuff. And that's never been easier than it is now at any other point in history. So even though there's like, there's goods and bads, I think it's, it's being able to be flexible. And like I said, kind of defining really like, what do you want out of this? Like, what are you making this game for? And like, what do you see the end game being? Um, I think that you can accomplish those things if you're, if you're realistic about it. The one I always compare it to is, is rather than the music industry, the book industry, because mm. it is so easy to self-publish a book now. Like, yes, um, like yeah. you can actually, I've toyed with this myself. I, I write in my spare time and I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've self-published a novel. I've not made it like publicly available, but the process through which you do that is like, I could quite easily have just copy and pasted someone else's book or I could have put my shopping list I could yeah. have made my shopping list a print-on-demand novel, and there is nothing stopping me from doing that. And on the one hand, that's great because it means that anyone that's got a story to tell, or in our case, anyone that's got a game that they want to get out there, can do yeah. that. On the downside, anyone that wants to get a game yeah. out there can do that. So yeah. it not only makes it like really difficult for indies to kind of get noticed over everyone else, it also opens it up. I mean, we kind of we've seen the the number of games on Steam nowadays, like the sheer yeah. amount of them you're not telling me a majority or even half of them are actually kind of any good by quality standards. Like it, it, you get the sense that a lot of it is kind of knocked out. And that's not to say that the, the developers behind those sort of games aren't passionate about what they do, but they're just not up to the standard of what audiences expect. If you know well, and so, yeah. And so that's where I'm going to, I'm going to make a big plug for curation. Um, you know, like a few years ago, this was something that, I feel like me and other people who work in the curation space are like, this is important. This is important. Um, and unfortunately, it's actually really difficult to make a living doing curation work, even though it's something that is really important to essentially every kind of platform and to the industry in general. Like if you have consumers being totally fatigued by the volume of low quality work that's coming out, it's going to turn them off to the medium, you know, like they're going to not really bother with it. They're not going to slug through steam to search through thousands and thousands of games to find the best stuff, you know, and like the idea that that curation in these ways can be automated. I really don't agree with that in some contexts. And even even a bigger scale, like you think about stuff like what's been going on with Facebook over the last couple of years, where like, you know, they want to automate the news feeds, and they want to change this, and they do this. And it's like, okay, well, now we have a bunch of things floating around that are coming from not real websites and like conspiracy theories and bizarro stuff, um, you know, and then it turns people off and they're like what you know what can I trust that I'm seeing on my newsfeed and you kind of get the same thing with stuff with games it's like when you have or books or music or any of that sort of stuff if you don't have people behind it kind of curating it in some way to say like hey this has like some basic quality level or 
if you like this kind of music, you'll like this album, or if you like this thing, you know, you'll like this book or whatever. Um, you know, that actually helps keep consumers happy and it helps to keep developers being able to get their work out there without it having being bogged down by this kind of like, you know, <laughs> overabundance of, of information or overabundance of games. And so, you know, it's, it's the way that we sustain ourselves is essentially through sponsorship. Like we function really as a nonprofit, like at the end of a show, our goal is to make $0. And then any money that we make from sponsorships from bigger companies is what we use to actually support ourselves. But the ability to just go and like, go to a platform or go to developers and say, hey, pay us to curate is like, not really a thing that's possible at the moment, but it's something that's actually vitally important to the whole ecosystem. Um, so I, I kind of find it this like, interesting, interesting state where we're in where I think more and more people are realizing that having actual curation and having, um, you know, having a way to sort through like the kind of good and the bad. And like you said, it's not bad. Like, you know, the developers don't care about it or, or whatever, but it's in some cases it's just like, yeah, if you open up a game and it doesn't work and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, or, you know, it's a rip off of some other game or something like that. Like you get enough of those and you just get tired of looking at the platform I'm kind of keeping a close eye on myself is Switch, obviously. Everyone's kind of um, very excited yeah. about Switch over the last year. And there's been a kind of an indie gold rush on that platform because yes. I think you know, studios are thinking, right, get in quick while the audience is excited and there isn't too much on that platform. There's too much, there yeah. isn't too much on that shop. I don't believe Nintendo even separates um, you know, indie games from other games. It's just, they're all just bundled into one shop. I believe I don't, I'm not sure if there are categories yet. I haven't spent a great deal of time on the eShop. I have to confess um, mm -hmm. because I've got enough games to be playing on that. Damn yeah. Thing. But, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if, if, Nintendo actually kind of introduces any sort of curation going forward because I, I, th I think I'll be honest call me pessimistic but I think it's too late for Steam I don't think they're going to do anything but Nintendo at least and uh, and maybe the other consoles might actually attempt to uh, to try and you know filter out the, the the best games yeah and I think the platforms that end up being really successful are the ones that can do that like if you know, if you think back to the Nintendo gold seal of approval, like I think yeah. that stuff actually kind of did matter. Like you look at it and it was the same way as like, you know, record labels when I was listening, you know, super into music or whatever. But like in the mid nineties, there was, um, oh man, what was the, uh, there was a label that published like nine inch nails and all the kind of like cool goth rock stuff. And like, at some point I would just pick up any CD that was like, put on this record company because I was like, okay, well, I liked all the other stuff and they only put out things that are like in the genre that I like. Um, and like I said, I think that stuff is important because it, it will, if you gain the trust of a consumer and you gain the trust of the fans and like you have a consistent quality level and you have a voice associated with it. Um, I mean, you even think about like, like Devolver, you know, like they do a pretty good job of that. Like you can look at a game and be like, that's a Devolver game. Um, you can look at a game and be like, wow, that's a Nintendo game. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think Steam is really like, they have a certain kind of ethos, you know, like Valve has the the way that they kind of structure the company where it's a little bit of like, I guess, structured anarchy is maybe the best way to call it. <laughs> or, uh, and, you know, that that reflects itself in the platform. And so as a consumer, like your experience for that is kind of complicated and maybe it's not really good for a lot of certain kinds of people. Like you really have to be like wanting to dig through a lot of stuff. You have to be a really hardcore gamer to find stuff that you want to play on steam or you hear about it word of mouth and you just use it as a platform to be able to get it. Um, which, you know, some of the work that we want to be doing is to make discovering games and finding content and finding stuff that really resonates with you 
a easier, more user-friendly way to do it. Because I think that in some ways, like, you know, there's tech is everywhere and games are going to be everywhere. And if you have a hard time finding the content, if the content you do find seems like it's the same stuff over and over and over again, you know, it feels like it's marketed to the same kind of like core gamer audience over and over again. It's really going to turn other people off to it. And I think in the long run, too, it turns people off to getting involved in the industry or making games. And I really think of games as kind of like I'm calling it like a gateway drug into technology. Um, But, you know, for younger people that are coming up now, like a really good, fun way to learn how to program is to learn how to make a game. And even if you don't get into games later, you know, maybe you go on and you found a tech company or maybe you do this other stuff. And if we're really kind of like gatekeeping at a very early level of like, okay, it's really hard to find games. The games that you do find are about shooting things. You know, you have to go on this platform that's really confusing and complicated. You have to have a computer that costs a thousand dollars. You know, it's really going to turn off lots of people who could be welcomed into technology and into creating games and into making stuff and really enjoy this work. Um, And a lot of the games that I think independent developers are making is that kind of stuff that appeals to lots of different audiences. And so it's like, yeah, how do you connect these niche audiences with the actual content that they're interested in, as opposed to just putting thousands and thousands and thousands of piles of stuff in front of them being like, okay, Godspeed, (laughs) like, go find it. (laughs) Well, Use our tagging system. <laughs> yeah. And like you say, like yeah, indie games, I'd, I'd argue, are probably like the, the, the best hope our audience, uh, sorry, our industry has in, in reaching different audiences. Like, you know, again, to kind of compare to movies or books, like, you know, books, for example, there's there's romance genre and there's, you know, thrillers and mysteries and like, yeah. there's all these different kind of veins that all have their own different audiences. And when you look at games like the, the grander scheme of games ultimately we're still certainly on pc and console and certainly in the AAA space we're still only really appealing as you say to that kind of that core game of that blockbuster sort of audience it would essentially yeah. be the equivalent of if films if the only films or the vast majority of films released were superheroes and action blockbusters and i know it feels yeah. like that in the cinema at the moment what with all the, <laughs> the billion cinematic universes out there and so forth yeah but, but you know you don't you still have these moving dramas and, and art house pictures and so forth. there is still those that content for the audience but not the, that's less apparent in games and i think that's because that content is in the indie game space and i'm kind of i'd love to see more of that grow and that that stuff reach kind of more mainstream acceptance yeah, I agree. And I think stuff like the like IGF is is good for that in some ways because it's put together by, you know, like the the people who do the selections and the judging and the jurying on it are people that are really involved and passionate with the games industry and they like to celebrate, you know, various kinds of content. Like sometimes the games that get selected are because they like, you know, they're super popular and they're just really well-made games like they're awesome games and some of them are like wow this game really speaks to an audience or speaks to a story or speaks to something that isn't really seen and we want to celebrate that as well too and so I think that there are ways to get that out there but like you know how many fans are actually watching IGF you know like how like these are still like kind of like core industry things like the mega booth I always joke that it's very like insider baseball like we're almost strictly a b2b company and so trying to grow into like a b2c is is kind of like our next challenge because we have fans that are at PAX and you know we have like super fans that are part of the game industry but we're not like to a kind of like average consumer or even just to like a semi-hardcore consumer of video games, you know, like we're not really that well known of a brand. And so I think if we can get our voice out there in that sense, then we can say like, hey, you know, like we have all this kind of cool content or hey, check out the IGF stuff or check out what's on IndieCade if you like these kinds of things. But that that kind of like genre within the games industry really hasn't like 
made it far past out the industry. And a lot of that is just because of like, yeah, it's like marketing budgets and exposure. And I think people's perception of video games too. Like there's still a lot of like, I still see articles that are just like, man, did you know video games? And I'm like, come on. <laughs> like people have been playing video games for like ever. And it's like, can you believe this? Can you believe that people pack a stadium to watch people play video games? It's like, yes, I can believe it. It's been happening for a really long time and it's making a lot of people a lot of money. And it's still treated in kind of like mainstream media as like this like crazy, weird hobby thing that like kids these days you know and it's really like where is that coming from like movies don't get treated that way books don't get treated that way like I kind of wonder like what is it going to take to really get treated like like seriously I guess in some sense by like a kind of larger mainstream audience and and maybe some of it is like like kind of like you were saying you know maybe some of it is just that people don't really feel like there's content out there that is for them and so it just perpetuates the cycle um you know you think about stuff like like her story um, my mom came to the the first year that I did IGF, uh, and her story had won a bunch of stuff, or I don't know. And she, she hasn't played a video game since Mrs. Pac-Man, and she was like, "I'd really like to play that game. Like that seems really cool." Because her idea of a video game is this thing with like a complicated controller that she has to move really fast, that she's not going to understand all the buttons, and that she's going to have to fight stuff, which like you know she's not interested in. But like watching these scenes and unfolding a mystery, and like typing into the computer, and all this is like things that are appealing to her. Um, but, you know, how does that, how does that information get out to, you know, moms around the world kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> the daft thing is like half the time, the people who are saying, oh, you know, video games there for kids and, and you know, still in that kind of outdated perception, half the time, those are the people who are still playing, who are playing Candy Crush or Farmscapes yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and, yeah, and it's just it's finding that way of getting them to you know put Candy Crush down and play her story, play. Um, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah. But even then, like you know, not considering like, oh, do you play video games? And they're like, no, but I play Candy Crush fifteen hours a week while I'm on the train. You yeah. know, it's like, okay, well, that's a video game. <laughs> like this idea that like, oh, that's not a real game or it's not this, you know, because it's like casual mobile stuff. But yeah, like you're saying, it's like it's not really that far of a leap from something like that to sitting down and spending the little extra time to play her story or. You know, like I really love Mini Metro and that's on mobile, you know, like or there's the whole kind of debacle with threes and then what was it, 2048 or whatever kind of took yeah. it and and yeah, and ran with it and that whole thing. But, you know, there is that stuff that kind of like makes it out there. But then the story behind it or the idea of like what the creators are or that you could kind of go down a rabbit hole of other stuff that's like it is still I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of curious, like, what is what is the, the turnover on that? Like what makes people like you know, kind of peek a little bit and be like, ooh, I wonder what else is out there that's like this. Definitely. Um, to go back to something you were saying earlier about um, kind of watching the, the kind of the success rate of people who've been on the indie mega booth and then obviously got on to do other things to create bigger companies, presumably you you kind of track as much of that as you can. Have you seen the, the success rate of past mega booth um exhibitors kind of declining or increasing like are more indies finding their fortune or or is it becoming even harder we've kind of touched um, on how why it's harder earlier but yeah i mean so we actually um there's a university that's been doing a study on the mega booth in our communities and actually they published two papers so far so the first paper was actually a study about um the types of companies that we work with like you know are they making money are they sustainable um, do they feel like they're successful? And hopefully, I think they're doing a follow-up to that one sometime soon. I think that's their next set of research. And then the second one was on what they call cultural intermediaries, which is a little bit what I was talking before with the kind of curation. And it's like the idea of like these companies and these people that act as the scaffolding 
um, behind like kind of creative artistic work, especially in the games industry. Um, but they're like a silent kind of like a silent partner. Um, and so we do actually have some data on that. And we have a lot of anecdotal stuff where we include it in like our sponsor documents and stuff about like, hey, here's a game that like we showed that kind of like blew up later. Um, but I would say like over the last year or two, I kind of feel like we've we've had a lot of teams that I think are are sustainable. Like I wouldn't say that we had so many kind of like giant breakout hits and the ones that we do, um, you know, kind of make the rounds and they get pretty popular. And that's that's amazing. But I think those those kinds of games tend to get attention in lots of different places. And sometimes we get to it first and sometimes other people do. Um, and I think what helps the teams become successful when they work with us is that we do have all this other kind of infrastructure and we do have these connections and we do have the community of developers. So it's like, it's not so much that like, hey, we said that your game was cool. It's like, hey, we said your game was cool. Plus here is all these resources and all of this stuff to be able to help you kind of succeed. And in some ways, I think the industry has been maturing a bit. Like when you know, when we had first started out off in this, it was a lot of just like, I feel like kind of people running around waving their arms being like, Oh, my God, now who do I talk to now? What do I do? Like, you know, what's supposed to happen with this? Like, am I supposed to feel really bad if I make money? Like, I'm, I'm an indie dev, you know, I'm an auteur, like, I shouldn't even want to like do the business side of this. Um, but I think after there was so much content and so much stuff, as an industry, I think, you, you know, we kind of had to mature. And so I think a lot of independent developers now do like to mentor and help other other younger developers and younger developers coming into it have more kind of like resources and institutional knowledge that come from people who have gone through it over the last few years to say like, hey, you know, like this is how you showcase your game in an event. This is how you pitch to a publisher. This is how you do this and this is how you do this. So I think like we're all kind of like slowly learning like the kind of tools of the trade or the things that kind of work and don't work in a way that helps more people be sustainable. But, you know, that's that's kind of a little bit anecdotal because we are self-selecting like to showcase at the mega booth you still have to be able to pay for your booth space and you still have to like be able to travel to an event that's really far away and so in some ways like you already have to kind of have hit some base level of success before you could even get accepted into it because it's consumer facing and just because the way that these shows and stuff cost but then stuff like igf um, or things like that's why we started doing the mega shows um, is that like the idea is that we go to, to lots of different cities and it's not so expensive for developers to travel. It's not so expensive for fans to travel to it. So we're kind of trying to address that. But, you know, like I said, like we're we're almost like self-selecting for people that are on a trajectory to be sustainable or to be successful or to are already kind of have like some small consumer audience. We just help to boost to boost their ability to reach that audience and boost their ability to take advantage of opportunities that are placed in front of them. So I don't think like I feel like we have so many people that come in and then just kind of like like fail, I guess, and we still have those. Um, but I feel like that happened more like I'd say maybe like three or so years ago, where there was kind of like to me it was like the 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 end of the bubble, you know, like kind of where people were rushing in, rushing in, rushing in, rushing in, and then at some point it just couldn't the weight of itself couldn't sustain itself, you know, and that and it kind of like popped a bit. And I think that was when a lot of people were just like, oh, maybe this isn't for me, or maybe I need to go work at a bigger company, or maybe I need to do something. But I think people were coming into it with like, pretty unrealistic expectations. There was a lot of the like, I'm going to be the next Minecraft, I'm going to do this, you know, my game should be successful because I want it. And as much as like, that's a good feeling to have, like when you go into it, like, there's so much content, there's so much stuff. And if you want to go to books or you want to go to music, like just because you want to be a famous rock star doesn't mean that you get to be a famous rock star. And just because you want to be a famous author doesn't mean that you get to be a famous author. There's a lot of work that goes behind it. 
And there's a lot of like failures before people become successful, like the chance of you doing one thing and it blowing up and being the best thing that you've ever done in your career, like right off the bat is pretty rare. Yeah. Agreed. Do you think we passed then this this talk of the, there was a lot of indie apocalypse talk like um, yeah. a couple of years back? Like are we are we past that and now realizing that yeah you know what success is is hard to to come by and depends as we said earlier about on your definition of success. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't want to like you know totally go on record and be like the indie apocalypse is over and then no, have a bunch course. of people be like that's not totally true. Um, but I don't know. It doesn't seem as like. It doesn't seem as dire, I think. I think, too, like, um, I see less people who are like, oh, my God, I mortgaged my house, you know, and, like, I moved to this thing and I sold everything that I owned to, like, make this game. You know, I kind of see less of that. Like, I see a lot more kind of practicality in it, which I think is a lot safer. So it kind of makes it feel less dire when your game doesn't do well or, like, you know, if it doesn't come out on the right schedule. Like, the number <laughs> the number of games and teams that I've seen be like, okay, my game is going to come out, you know, in two months or something, and then have them hit that deadline. Except for Supergiant, which is just like, they're they're like a machine of a company. They just make amazing stuff like every couple of years, and they put it out, and you're like, how do you do that? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd I'd say like I feel like it's less. It feels less frantic, and it feels less like like people just get thrown out into the wild with no kind of safety net underneath them. I think that there's lots of kind of like institutional ways that either other people can help each other or there's more access to certain kinds of funding or, you know, there's more communities that are like how the mega booth is like, there's plenty of other communities that help to support developers as well too. So I think that there's just more and more of that. So it's less like, <clears throat> it's less like scary <laughs> to just kind of like hop into it. So what kind of indie games are on your radar at the moment? What have you been enjoying recently? What are you most looking forward to seeing finished and coming out? Uh, well, so this is going back to the conversation that we had before we started recording the podcast is I almost primarily play management simulation games. So <laughs> there's a lot of um, there's a lot of games that I've been playing that I think are like Planet Coaster had come out like about a year or so ago. And I've been playing a bunch of that um, still playing The Sims. You know, I really love Mini Metro, uh, any kind of game that has any kind of like systems in it or management simulation games. So we actually surprisingly don't get too many of those submitted to the mega booth. Like it's not a really popular genre of games that um, indie developers tend to make, but there are a handful of them. There's um, one called crest that we've shown a few times, which is, um, it's kind of like a, do you ever play black and white? It's like, I haven't, a, but I know the, the yeah. gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a little like that where you're like an omnipotent being and you, communicate with the people on the planet um through symbols basically so like in this one you're you're almost making like you're using like a visual programming language to like communicate uh with the people on the planet so that they make resources and do certain things um we had a game a little while ago that was called project high rise which is basically sim tower uh which was a game that i was obsessed with when i was younger uh so i kind of tend to personally play more stuff like that um but we definitely have a wide variety of games that are that are in the mega booth that are not just that. Like if it were just the the games that Kelly plays showcase, we would all be playing. <laughs> we'd all be playing City Skylines for eight hours. <laughs> nice. Um, obviously, you're building up to this year's IGF and uh, this year's GDC mega booth. And um, what's kind of new for this year? What what can people look forward to next month? Yeah. So for our GDC showcase, uh, we're actually doing something a little different this year, which I'm I'm excited about. So in the past, we've had 12 games and they've shown for the entire week. And this year we're having 24 games. So we have 12 games that are showing on Monday, Tuesday, and then we have 12 games that are showing um, Wednesday through Friday. And I believe this podcast is going to air before we make the announcement. So I can't really say about what's in it. 
but they're all super cool games and it's amazing. And I really love our showcase at GDC. Uh, we have it set up that there's like couches and TVs. So it's a little more like kind of like a chill hangout living room thing. Um, we're on the third floor of Moscone West and any badge holders can uh, go up and see it. And if you're not going to be at GDC, you can go on our website and you can follow us on Twitter um, at Indie Mega Booth. And we're going to be talking about all the cool games that are going to be there. Uh, and yeah, so I'm, I really love our GDC showcase. And then that kind of rolls into IGF stuff, um, which all of the finalists and honorable mentions and stuff are out there already as well too. But there's a couple like really cool, interesting things that are, are up for awards this year. So I actually know the winner is like way in advance. So it's really hard for me to like not spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few more weeks to go. <laughs> yeah. Not too much longer. <laughs> Excellent. How can people get in touch with you, um, whether they want to talk about the Mega Booth, the festival, or maybe just management games? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so you can go on the website. Um, our email is contact at Indie Mega Booth. Um, you can tweet at us. We have an Instagram. We're on Facebook as well. Um, yeah, so if you reach out on any of those places there, either I'll answer you or someone will answer you. If it's about management sims, I'll probably answer. <laughs> um, yeah, and we also have a mailing list, so you can go on the website and sign up for our mailing list. Uh, we have two different versions. We have a business side and a consumer side. So if you're a fan and you're interested in hearing about cool indie stuff that's coming out, um, we've been doing it once a month, so you can sign up for the mailing list there. Uh, and then also we'll be at PAX, obviously, and we have our big giant crazy showcase, and we'll be announcing that in about another week or so. And I'll also be on a panel there, um, and we're talking about basically like uh, building bridges between lots of different communities and cultures through video games, which I'm pretty excited about that. Excellent, excellent. Well, unfortunately, I'm not making it to GDC this year, but um, ah. a few members of the GI team are, so um, I'll be sure to point them in direct. I, I believe yeah. they, usually, they usually head around to the mega booth and check out uh, the latest indie game, so I'll get them to say hello. Um, brilliant. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Kelly. That's been amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. It was fun chatting about, yeah, all things indie games. Excellent. Well, in the meantime, all our listeners can find all of their news, analysis, and insight into the world behind video games at www.gamesindustry.biz.